Skynet, HAL 9000, Ultron, The Matrix, fictional depictions of artificial intelligences have played a major role in Western pop culture for decades. While nowhere near that nefarious or powerful, real AI has been making incredible strides and, in 2023, has been a big topic of conversation in the news with the rapid development of new technologies, the use of AI-generated images and AI chatbots such as ChatGPT becoming freely accessible to the general public. This month, we'll be looking at the role AI currently plays in our lives and the impact it can have as it develops and becomes more mainstream. Should AI be accessible to all? How does gender influence the way AI is made? And most importantly, what are the hopes and fears for the future of AI? This is Hope Jennings Grounds with the Oxford Comment. On today's episode, we discuss how AI can be influenced by culture, feminism, and the aforementioned Western narratives defined by popular TV shows and films. How can these aspects change the way AI continues to develop and be used? For our first interview, we have Dr. Kerry McInerney and Dr. Elena Drage, postdoctoral research associates at the Centre for Gender Studies at the University of Cambridge, and two of the editors of the upcoming book, Feminist AI, Critical Perspectives on Data, Algorithms, and Intelligent Machines. Both have been recognised as brilliant women in AI ethics for 2022 by the global initiative Women in Ethics. Hello, we're here with um, Dr. Eleanor Drage and Dr. Kerry McInerney. Um, can you please introduce yourselves for us? Um, how did you get involved in your field? Hi, I'm Eleanor Drage, and I have the great pleasure of working with Kerry, who's also here today. And we work for a place called the Leverhulme Centre for the Future of Intelligence, which is based at the University of Cambridge. And I got in it through a really strange path. I did a literature undergrad and French and specialised in queer theory and feminist literature. And I kind of realised that a lot of people who try to imagine better times and spaces, better places to live, other worlds, were also thinking about that um, through the lens of science fiction, through speculative fiction. They were imagining these other spaces and times. And so that kind of got me into science fiction, which is very closely connected to AI. And I think we can, we'll talk about that in a bit. So I'm quite interested in the overlaps between uh, feminist and utopian philosophy um, and queer theory and anti-racist ideas and technology. And I'm Kerry McInerney. And so, yes, I also have the pleasure of working with Eleanor. I'm originally from Aotearoa, New Zealand, but moved to the UK when I was about 18 and have a degree in politics and international relations. Uh, and so I'm really interested in the geopolitical aspects of AI, um, but was lucky enough to be brought in touch with Eleanor on a gender and technology project at the University of Cambridge Centre for Gender Studies, which is where my interest in feminist AI really developed. And I now bring a lot of the things that I learned in that first research role on the gender and tech project into my current role where I look at AI and human values or broadly thinking about AI ethics in the context of the EU. Thanks oh. for having us, by the way, I've got to say. It's great to be on. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you are both editors of the upcoming book, Feminist AI, which has a focus on feminism in AI and how it should be deployed for social justice. Can you talk us through how this can be achieved? Are there any quick wins and where could it have the most impact? Yeah, sure. I'll kick us off. I think when we started 
conceptualizing this volume, Feminist AI, it was hugely challenging for us because we don't think there's one such thing as feminism. We think there's this massive cacophony of different kinds of feminisms, plural. And so how do we even begin to capture the incredible breadth of feminist thinking that there is, while also trying to combat some of the different trends we see in feminist activism right now, particularly trans-exclusionary radical feminisms or turfisms that we think are really harmful. And so putting together this volume, though, made us realize that there is space for many of these different kinds of, you know, bountiful and beautiful feminisms to be coexisting. And that includes the kinds of feminism which ask for very, very slow change that are maybe working incrementally within the tech industry to try and bring about reforms to make tech that's better and fairer through to these really radical kinds of approaches, which are saying, actually, we need to completely overthrow how we currently think about and make tech, or we need to have complete moratoriums on certain technologies like predictive policing. And so I think rather than um, saying we can, you know, only have particular kinds of quick fixes or that we can only um, have these big structural changes, I think the volume has really helped me to grapple with the way that change can happen at so many different paces and in so many different ways. Yeah, very nicely put. I am always very skeptical of the idea of a quick win. Even things that you think were were quick wins weren't. In the case of you know queer rights, all the, all those you know things that seem to have come really quickly absolutely took forever um, and were the product of many steps back. I was also thinking of something when you know Kerry, you're talking about pluralism and why we want to have a plurality of voices and whether we actually succeed in having a plurality of voices and. To me, pluralism sort of seems to imply that there's at least a kind of um, not really an equality of ideas, but to have lots of ideas on the table that are equally listened to or um, or listened to together or sort of in the same way. And and that is is really not true. I don't think we can present it as all these ideas take this up the same amount of space or they are um, kind of equally bought into by feminism. Not at all. I mean, if you just look at the, you know, the contributors, they're mainly based at institutions in the West, and that's because that's where the funding is for feminist work on AI. You know, as one of our colleagues pointed out, it's really not a priority in lots of places to think about a feminist approach to to AI. So we're really conscious of where we failed as well, and we think that that's really important, and we try and write about that in the introduction. I think another thing I really wanted to say was. Um, to give an example of of what feminist AI can contribute to the world, one of the most important principles in feminism in data science and AI is is context. Context really matters, which means that things can't be developed at scale ad infinitum. It means that what if we built an AI system in your house? If you bought if you built something with your family that served a particular need, would we be less afraid of AI? Would that actually be more useful than something that is, you know, built by by Microsoft? We have no control over it. So context is really crucial. Where the data comes from, where it's used, who it's used for, who are the people building it? And I think that kind of building something at home, although there's lots of issues with that kind of metaphor, I think that's quite an interesting way of asking, um, of, of thinking about what feminist principles do in AI. Thanks so much. What are your fears if a feminist approach isn't to be taken as AI usage grows? And how could future AI technology differ if this isn't the chosen route? I was reading the um, 
you know, that letter written by the Future of Humanity Institute about what we should be worried about, the great fears of AI um, that's going to take over and we'll all die. And it struck me that that the authors are people who imagine utopia as a place of radically enhanced post-humans, colonized space, um, digital people, etc. I mean, that's certainly not my utopia. And so when they cry for a forthcoming apocalypse, you know, I really think about that apocalypse. I, I don't know why people seem to think that Elon Musk is definitely the person to listen to if he's calling for something. I think actually really sensible people think that, which is bizarre. I was on this show called Moral Maze on BBC4 last week, and a really sort of sensible, intelligent person was saying, yeah, but Elon Musk is saying this, so why should we not listen? Um, and that struck me as a really is a really odd and sort of upsetting thing because when we think about fears not everyone is afraid in the same in the same way because we're not going to be affected in the same way if there is some kind of apocalypse um is that an apocalypse in the west because there's already a digital apocalypse in in south africa the way that infrastructure is right now ai is having has a very differential effect around the world so we need to keep asking apocalypse for who Carrie, do you want to say anything on that before I go on something else? Yeah, I know. I think this question of like fears around what happens if AI doesn't take a kind of feminist bend, if we don't see like a meaningful transformation of the tech industry as it stands, you know, I think there's like a myriad of different fears that certainly shape how I'm approaching this from kind of the continued exclusion of women from the tech industry, the intensification of the gender pay gap, the environmental costs to these technologies. But I think actually one of my really big fears that we maybe don't talk about is that we start to lose the ability to see life without AI. Uh, and I think we almost see this in certain cities, like, for example, I was just in um, Durham, North Carolina a couple of weeks ago. It's very hard to get around that city without a car. And I think to some extent, I wonder if we start to do that with our own lives when it comes to the kinds of technologies that actually become indispensable to us. And um, we've seen how hard it is to disengage from lots of big tech platforms. And, you know, I think at the moment we're at this juncture where we can start to ask these questions of actually, do we want these technologies to be inevitable? Do we want them to be woven into the fabric? of our daily lives in such a way that they're inextricable. And I think that's a really important question that we need to be asking rather than plunging headfirst into this automated future. Totally. It's There's this thing with capitalism, you know, Tina, there is no alternative. It's a really closeted way of thinking about the world. And if you're a paper reading sort of person, there's a really good paper by Johnny Penn, who's our colleague um, at CFI, who writes about algor algorithmic silence. And it doesn't mean a kind of total moratorium of all algorithms. It just means thinking about where actually these things are useful and where we really don't need them, where it's just about throwing AI onto a product label and selling it for more money. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, the gender gap is often different around the world. How could AI widen or narrow these gaps? Are there any examples of countries or projects where things are going well? 
Yeah, I think looking at the differences in global contexts is really, really important when we're thinking about AI and gender inequality, because I think on the one hand, you're right to point out that actually there's places where certain kinds of gender related issues in AI are actually looking a lot better. So, for example, the UK, where I'm based right now, is particularly poor when it comes to women's representation in the tech industry, whereas in other countries, for example, in Egypt, there's much better representation, I think, of women in computer science and in things like running AI conferences. Um, but at the same time, I think on the other hand, one of the challenges of AI is even as it's taken up very differently in local contexts, it's still quite a narrow number of industry sort of playmakers, people like OpenAI, Meta, who control a huge amount of compute resources and who are really exercising such a disproportionate amount of control over the technologies that we consume. And these tend to be located in a very narrow range of geographical locations like the US and China. And then they give those countries really outsized influence influence in a lot of other spaces, which has led to these critiques and these complaints that we might be seeing new forms of colonialism, neocolonialism arise through the outreach of digital technologies. So I think that's one big important thing for me. And the other one is that, you know, I think it's also important that we do look at AI in local context, but that we also look at the planetary impact of these technologies. So for example, we've seen a lot of excitement around ChatGPT and other large language models, but these models are intensely environmentally destructive. They use huge amounts of energy and they release large amounts of CO2. And there's well-documented evidence around environmental racism and sexism that women in the majority world tend to bear the vast majority of this environmental degradation and the harms associated with it. So I think it's definitely important to look at how all these different inequalities are playing out. Yeah, I mean, really nicely put. And what's really worrying at the moment is that you have these kind of big tech investors like Chamat Palapatia, who were saying that all this stuff, you know, asking, well, the example that he used is, is basically like woke people, whatever that means, saying that one particular piece of technology or AI doesn't work in the Amazon for all Amazon languages or in like Amazonian context, which is a really you know weird example anyway. And he calls that elite language. And he said that big tech needs to stop talking in elite language and just get down to the nuts and bolts of what sells and what can sell quickly and how products can become more profitable. And I, that struck me as interesting because the people, the kind of the populations that he was talking about in, in this kind of weird way are not elites. So perhaps, you know, Kerry and I are elites in, in an elite institution. And that's totally fine. I don't care if, you know, people like him call call us that. That's that's totally fine. But to to think of these problems as elite problems when actually they're not at all about elites, it strikes me as really cruel. And this kind of cruelty you see a lot in in big tech. And so when they're worried about apocalypse, it's not a kind of, oh, we're worried on your behalf. I think it would be really wrong uh, and quite naive to think that. Thank you. According to a 2018 study from Wired and Element AI, just 12% of AI researchers globally are female. Has this improved in the past five years from your experience? And how do we encourage more women into the field? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, I mentioned in the last answer that there are variations, of course, in terms of context, but I think we can still see, you know, globally there being this massive disparity of women and gender minorities compared to men and particularly white men in the field of AI. And that this really does impact, you know, who the universal user of a technology is imagined to be. And also, 
you know, who products are being made for and what kinds of concerns are being embedded within these technologies. Um, and so, you know, we think that there's this wide range of reasons for this from kind of systemic exclusions and harassment in the industry itself, um, but also gender stereotyping. And so something that Eleanor and I have done along with um, a couple of our colleagues from the Leverhulme Center from the Future of Intelligence, Dr. Stephen Cave and Dr. Kanta Dihal, um, is look at how representations of AI scientists on film might themselves be shaping our cultural expectations of who is seen as an AI engineer or who counts as an AI scientist. And we actually have a chapter in the book, Feminist AI, which reflects on some of the findings from this study. But we surveyed 100 years of science fiction film that we deemed that were popular, and we found that only a of these AI creators and scientists on screen were gendered female or were presented as women, which is way lower than even in real life. Um, and so we basically call for Hollywood and for the creative industries to be trying to tell different stories about who counts as an AI engineer, because we really need to start propagating different kinds of societal narratives. These films are incredibly important in generating our conceptions of technology, but also who makes these technologies. And a lot of those bots are naked, like in Ghost in the Shell, you've got Scarlett Johansson in a, some kind of, you know, outfit that makes her look like she's just in skin. I mean, that's kind of the point. And at a time when female actresses are declining to be naked on screen or you have these contracts that are very, that stipulate, you know, what they will and won't show, it strikes me as interesting that female nudity is being replaced by female bots nudity. So I think we need to be really conscious also of kind of the flip side, also what the bots look like. Um, I also wanted to get people to think a bit about not just women in the workplace, but also the narrative around AI. And currently at the moment, it's very masculinized, either very militarized, very corporatized, and all this kind of fear mongering, I wouldn't go into it. You know, I wouldn't work in AI if I was choosing now as a as a you know young engineer or young um, STEM professional or a young linguist or, or or whatever. So we need to think carefully about how the field is being portrayed, the kind of narrative and storytelling around um, a discipline, and whether that is attracting women or not. Yeah, and just to speak as well to the latter half of your question around has this changed much in the last five years and, you know, um, what we can be doing to encourage more women to this field. Like, I think the point that Eleanor raises around narrative is really important. But I want to first, like, caveat my answer here by saying, like, I have a huge amount of respect for a large number of incredible women who are very much embedded in the field of AI, who are working really, really hard to try and bring about a lot of transformative changes. Um, but at the same time, I think we've seen some really high-profile disappointments over the past five years, particularly the firing of Timnit Gibru and Margaret Mitchell from Google from the ethical AI team, and also just more broadly, the shutting down of a lot of ethical AI teams from Twitter uh, to Microsoft. And I think this leads a with a really bad example for for women and minoritized people and also just for anyone who's interested in the social and political impact of their work you know why would you then want to be going into that field 
And so I think in order to get more women and more people who aren't represented in this field in, something that we really have to do is just look at the cultures of these organizations and saying, like, actually, what can we do to transform these workplaces to make them just simply better and more attractive places to work? Because there's often a huge focus on recruitment on the so-called pipeline problem, which is how people somehow you know, quote unquote, drop out of the pipeline along the way. So you get fewer and fewer women represented at higher levels of organizations. I think we need to flip that question around and say, why will you not promote women, for example, in your organization? Like, why are women leaving your organization? You know, is this a comfortable and safe place for people to work? Because I don't think there's any point in us trying to increase the attractiveness of this field if they're going to enter these companies and then just immediately get thrown to the sharks. So, yeah, I think that it's really important that we're thinking both at a kind of society on cultural level about what kinds of stereotypes and factors might be inhibiting people from wanting to enter this field, but also within the fields themselves, what structural changes really need to happen. Totally. And I, I know that we can be really bum out, but it's also worth saying that all the people in the book are incredibly interesting, really like spectacularly interesting, wonderful, kind people. And we loved writing it and working with them. And so while the situation is, as Carrie said, dire in in big tech, it's also worth knowing that you can join organizations like DARE, D-A-I-R, which was um, founded by some of the people who were fired from um, Google, forced to leave. And they are a great um, place for these for brilliant women and, and brilliant brilliant minorities to gather. Um, it's a that if you want to meet some some truly fantastic and really uh, insightful people, unfortunately, those are the people that are going to have had a really hard time. You know, you don't get insight for free. You have to go through something really hard. So there's uh, there's that's the positive side is that you get to meet people who are actually um, really phenomenal. Thanks so much for that answer. Um, what branch or use of AI has surprised you both the most? I'm always surprised by how systems like chatbots can be both really advanced and extremely basic. For example, I've got a friend that sells chatbots and he was saying to me that, well, they're all advertised as AI. Some of them are more like flowcharts. I don't know whether you can think about those kind of yes, no diagrams that we used to do in maths. And to me, that doesn't really kind of figure as AI. That feels very, very basic. But others are algorithmically really advanced, but both kind of count as AI. So on the one hand, that's kind of how I feel about AI generally, is that there's stuff that I'm really unexcited and bored by. And then on the other hand, there's stuff that is tangibly really interesting. And often when you work with, when you talk to professionals in different industries um, who work in, in biotech or drug discovery or marketing, the kinds of AI tools that they're using are really kind of, they do excite me. So there's lots of things that are specific to particular industries that are really cool and exciting, obviously do have their own kind of problems and issues they throw up around the way that work is changing. Um, but then on the other hand, kind of lots of crap and snake oil that we can do without. Yeah, I think something that I found really surprising, which is unfortunately like a very negative example, but it's one that really impacted me when I first started researching in this field, 
um, was thinking about the way that certain kinds of technologies and specifically smart home technologies are used often for the purposes of coercive control or domestic violence or intimate partner violence. Um, because coming into this field, I was aware of some of the issues to do with smart home technologies and gender that have hit the wider mainstream. So particularly things like the female gendering of voice assistants like Alexa and Siri and how these might be replicating certain kinds of gender stereotypes, painting women as servile or domestic or positioned to solve your domestic needs uh, to the extent that some people call them, you know, smart wives. Uh, but something I wasn't really aware of is that even beyond this kind of female gendering of these tools, because they allow people to have so much control over domestic space, they can then be used to control people who reside within that space. And so, for example, sometimes one partner might be bringing in a tool, something that allows them to control the locks on the door or to track a partner's spending ostensibly in the name of convenience or ease and then actually they can be using that to say decide when their partner can or can't leave the house or to track their spending and question them on it and so it can really curtail someone's freedom and be used in quite abusive ways and you know this just um naive me merely shocked me because it was something I hadn't really ever thought about um I don't personally have you know for example Siri or Alexa or one of these voice assistants but it wasn't really because I'd thought about that particular capacity and I think what this really showed me was the importance of thinking about AI from a feminist lens from all sorts of angles not just in terms of what kinds of gender stereotypes does it produce but also have we thought about safety in this scenario have we thought about all the different ways that a technology can be exploited or can make someone vulnerable and how can we make sure that the technologies that we produce are as safe for everyone to use as possible especially when we take into account existing gender inequalities and patterns of harm thanks that's really interesting the user-friendly ai chatbot ChatGPT, has recently been all over the news what are your views on it and do you think that ai should be freely accessible it has been all over the news in fact it's kind of been made our lives a bit difficult because suddenly everything's about ChatGPT. However, um, while it's kind of everywhere, not everyone uses it in the same way. So I think at the moment, only developers and um, people on the list have access to kind of full features. Um, same with bolt-ons. There's lots of new stuff that people are excited about, but I don't think those are accessible to everyone. And then Kerry was talking earlier about compute you have to have the right infrastructure to be able to to build and use these kinds of tools. Um, so I think we need to think carefully about about what we mean by accessible, freely accessible. I'm, I'm not really sure. Do you mean kind of freely accessible as it is to users on the internet at the moment? Yes. Kerry, what do you think? It's a really interesting moment right now because I think there's a lot of issues uh, to do with the ethics of these large language models that have had quite a lot of attention in the AI ethics community for a long time. And indeed, the firing of Gabriel and Mitchell that I mentioned earlier was related to a confrontation over a really prescient paper um, called Stochastic Parrots, which explored the ethical and the environmental costs of developing large language models like ChatGPT. And it's a really fantastic paper. So again, if you're a paper reading person, I would highly recommend that you take a look at it. Um, it really captures, I think, some of the core issues that are coming up right now. Um, but then I think what was interesting is we see this discussion around these models hit the mainstream in a really quite um, unexpectedly large way uh, because there have been language models before that have been open to public use. I think this one has just somehow captured the public imagination. And so for me, I think what I find really 
hopeful, I say that with a big caveat about this situation, is that it's an incredibly good starting off point for talking about AI ethics. So asking people, for example, if they understand that this is a statistical model, that it's a predictive model that lets you know what word is statistically most likely to follow the word that came before it. And so it provides form, but not meaning, for example. Or do they know about the environmental costs of these models? Um, again, as I mentioned earlier, that they guzzle huge amounts of energy, release huge amounts of CO2. Are they aware of the way that these models can be used for misinformation and for propaganda? And so the point here, I think, is not necessarily to judge or shame people's meaningful interest in these large language models or to throw any you know, disagreement at the way that these models can be really, really valuable for things like generating transcriptions. Uh, but instead, you know, to have it as a critical moment for us to step back and reflect and say, okay, we are now entering a stage when we actually all need to have greater literacy around AI ethics because these tools are becoming increasingly accessible. And so how do we have that conversation together as a society? Yeah, absolutely. It's super well said. And Kerry and I are now working um, with the OCR, which is the um, an exam board in the UK, to create videos and resources for teachers and students about chat GPT and what it will do and its role in the classroom and what shouldn't be its role in the classroom. And I think what's interesting to me is that, you know, poor teachers are thinking, well, are people going to write essays and how do we regulate that? And of course, you know, the classroom is a place of learning. It's not a place of content generation. God knows, I mean, the stuff I produced at school was was pretty subpar. It's, it's somewhere that you have to learn how to think and to write. And I, teachers already know that, but I think what what Kerry has just said is so important for students to to realise that actually what they're generating has some value, but not in the way that they think it does. And I don't think it will be that difficult. I say optimistically to get people to use it in the right in the right way. I'm also really interested in what it means to become kind of an ethical prompter with ChatGPT, you know, writing prompts in a way that produces uh, the right kind of content or um, how to create these relationships between humans and ChatGPT that when you are kind of talking to each other, how that relationship is going to develop in the future. So there's lots of things to think about when we use it. The first order effects are always really boring. You know, like the first things that people do with it, like create poems, like the poems suck. I'm sorry. I mean, I think they suck. I'm a literature student. And I think that the people who love them don't read Yeats or, or any of our, the great poets. I, I look forward to the things that come after when we've had a chance to really think about what it can give to humankind and think slowly um, rather than just, oh, what's the coolest parlor trick I can think of right now? My final question is, um, what are the key threats and opportunities you envisage with AI if things keep moving at its current pace? Is there anything we need to be cautious about as the industry soars? I think there's such a range of concerns to do with I think the speed at which the industry is moving and the slowness necessarily, regulation is slow, but the slowness of the regulation of this industry and also the slowness and I would say the actual active depletion of kind of AI ethics teams and resources to be providing the kind of social and cultural framework that is really necessary for understanding that these technologies, they're not just kind of neutral products that get released into society, but then themselves that they are a deeply political project and the kinds of technology 
technologies that get prioritized in companies, that get developed and deployed, and exactly how they get deployed themselves play into these existing hierarchies, they play into existing patterns of power. And so to me, I think one of the major risks is that we see an intensification of existing forms of discrimination. And I think one of the largest areas we've seen this like meaningful contestation over this has been policing because of the ways that policing has historically been uh, in the UK and the US context in particular, you know, very, very deeply racist. Um, and so I think we're seeing a lot of societal pushback on the use of AI and predictive quote unquote technologies for policing and broader civil society. But I think, you know, it's important to recognize that there are a range of different ways that technological rollout without being kind of critically questioned could further amplify these discriminatory patterns. Totally. And the worry is that the world now is so afraid of AI turning us all into paperclips or whatever that people aren't talking about policing and AI anymore. In fact, I was trying to talk about it last week and I, that was the thing I was repeatedly cut off about because people aren't joining the dots between inequality and racism and sexism and extinction. Those things are all related. It's not a matter of saying extinction is more important than racism. The reason why extinction is on the cards is because we have a really undiverse bunch of people making these systems who don't actually care about ethics and ethical ways of creating AI. All those people were fired from Google when they tried to point this out. And now the community that fired them is saying, oh, we're we really worried. Well, <laughs> are you worried or are you not worried? Make up your mind. The thing that, that about policing that's really important is, and I was tracking this software called Data Miner for two years, and Data Miner was used in the States to track and monitor BLM protests and Muslim Lives Matter, and also to survey young people in high schools that were talking about BLM and track their presence in protests. And this technology is now being used in the UK, and the UK government have spent over £5 million on it. Um, and in my article last week in the Byline Times, we say what the impact of this is likely to be. But we're not saying, oh, look, the AI is so scary and so amazing, it's going to rise up and do X. Not at all. We're saying that the police at the moment, unfortunately, in the UK, there is such a problem with the police, with inequality in relation to policing, um, with structural discrimination in relation to policing, that it is not a good moment for the police to start using these kinds of technologies that are only going to exacerbate their own political imperatives. That's the problem. The problem is much less sexy than the AI. The problem is the client-AI relationship between the clients, the police, and the AI companies, the corporations. So I think that's the thing that we really need to be careful about, is these collaborations between, between AI companies and clients. I agree with that. And I also think speaking to this point of speed and the industry moving at the speed that it is, you know, I think to some extent as well, speed begets speed. And this is something I look at quite a lot is this rhetoric of the AI arms race um, and all this idea that companies and whole countries have to be competing with one another to produce certain kinds of AI products as quickly as possible. And we certainly saw this with chat GPT, but we've also seen it with a lot of other technologies. And this, I think, is just a really dangerous rhetoric. I think it's very dangerous in terms of how it plays in 
into geopolitical tensions between, say, the U.S. and China or the U.S. and Russia. It's also very dangerous, though, because I think it encourages people to skip those ethical steps. There's a myth that doing, you know, AI ethics properly means that you're going to lose out in some way. And again, I'm not saying that there aren't meaningful issues around first mover advantage when it comes to things like large language models, but that simply put this race rhetoric, it's really bad for everyone because it really can lead, I think, globally to not only these intensifying tensions, but also just the creation of products which are simply not safe and shouldn't be rolled out at this scale. And so I do think this is a major contribution of feminist thinking about AI is breaking away from that move fast and break things Silicon Valley mindset to a move slowly and intentionally or question why you're doing what you're doing and making sure that what you're producing actually brings us value instead of just creating capitalistic value for a company. Totally. And Kerry pointed out that, you know, during wartime, moral corners are cut. You've known, you know, we know that that things that wouldn't be permissible in everyday life seem to be okay in times of war. And that's kind of what we're seeing at the moment. Well, thank you for such thoughtful in-depth answers. Um, it's been really interesting hearing them. Thank you so much for having us on. We really appreciate it. It's really nice to get the chance to chat. Our next guest is Dr. Kanta Dihau, co-editor of the upcoming book, Imagining AI, How the World Sees Intelligent Machines with Stephen Cave. Dr. Dihau is a science communication researcher at Imperial College London, her research focuses on science narratives, particularly those that emerge from conflict, and she has advised the World Economic Forum, the UK House of Lords, and the United Nations. Our next guest is Kanta Dihau, one of the editors of the upcoming book, Imagining AI, How the World Sees Intelligent Machines. Firstly, could you tell us about yourself and how you got involved in your field? Yes, thank you for having me. So I'm a science communication researcher at Imperial College London, and um, I look at the role of narratives of storytelling in shaping science and technology. And um, before I started my job at uh, Imperial, until very recently, I worked at the Leverhulme Centre for the Future of Intelligence at Cambridge, um, where I started as a postdoc on a, a research project called AI Narratives. And after three years of working on uh, that uh, project, which looked at um, how people have been imagining artificial intelligence, particularly in the English-speaking Western world. Um, that led to uh, a, a different book with Oxford University Press called AI Narratives in 2020. Um, I then moved on to a research project that looked at um, how uh, AI has been imagined across the world, how different cultures and different linguistic and geographical and political traditions have uh, shaped how people see intelligent machines and how that differs and how that um, clashes with uh, views of uh, dominant uh, countries, uh, dominant producers of technology, or where different countries find their form of technology should be the dominant form. Great, thank you so much. Um, and could you tell us a little bit more about your book, Imagining AI with Stephen Cave? Yes, so Imagining AI uh, comes out of um, three years of uh, networking and building connections with people uh, through a series of, of workshops um, in which we explored um, 
how have people been thinking about intelligent machines throughout history? And how do those traditions shape people's expectations of technology now? Uh, because people have been imagining intelligent machines way before we started thinking about the term AI um, or uh, before we started thinking about computers as these electronic machines. Um, and in AI narratives, we saw that people People had been imagining intelligent machines uh, since um, Homer wrote his Iliad. Now, in imagining AI, we are looking at such traditions uh, from uh, six different continents, um, looking into the deep history of uh, Chinese literature and philosophy, but also uh, to contemporary responses to AI, for example, uh, from um, Brazil, from India, from South Africa, uh, to see how uh, these responses to AI differ and uh, depend on um, people's individual contexts. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, and imagining AI has contributions about how AI is developing from across the world. Um, what, in your opinion, is the most interesting or perhaps the most important development going on in AI and why? So um, one of the approaches to, to imagining AI that I found most interesting is um, those artists who um, resist uh, the ways in which existing technologies are being imposed from different cultural contexts to their own. Uh, so they're meeting these uh, technologies that are not designed with them in mind or that are designed uh, to have a, a certain um, outcome, a certain audience in mind. Um, and instead, they take these technologies and use them for their own good, for their own entertainment, for their own political stories. Um, and particularly, uh, we find in uh, South America, but in post-colonial contexts around the world, you can see the ways in which uh, people take this technology and take it apart, turn it on their heads. Great, thank you. And um, Imagining AI also highlights some ways in which different cultures envisage and make use of AI. Could you talk a bit about these differences? So we saw differences across the world in many different ways, from uh, linguistic differences that show that even what you call AI in different languages shapes how people perceive the technology differently, um, whether you call it um, something that is associated with art or with intelligence, as in something that is associated with human brain power, or whether you associate it with many other things like electronics or like social cohesion. But other ways in which uh, people's views of AI differ is in how that's shaped by their political context. Uh, so that people's attitudes to AI, people's hopes and fears about the technology and what it might do today and what it might become in the future, it's really closely connected to people's political and social contexts. So for example, um, we have several chapters in Imagining AI focusing on um, thinking about intelligent machines in communist contexts. So um, in the Soviet Union, um, in uh, mid 20th century China, and how people saw AI um, under different political regimes, either as something that could help 
make revolutions take place, could make life easier for those wanting to have an easier life, wanting to have less work, or as a threat, as something that would make people redundant and lazy and uh, would uh, keep people in their subservient positions they were stuck in. And um, in other contexts, so um, I've mentioned post-colonial contexts, um, there the fear of AI is less future-oriented than in most um, uh, sort of dominant English-speaking Western contexts. So where um, in countries like the UK and the US, you have the dominant fear being something like the Terminator, some sort of future threat of a killer robot that might come and, you know, actually walk up to you and shoot you. But that is not something that currently exists. That kind of fear in many post-colonial contexts is replaced by a fear of technology that exists today um, or technology that is very close to existing as just another way of exploiting people who have been exploited and subjugated by technology in past centuries. So in that sense, those responses to AI are very much on a um, on a continuum of different kinds. It's just another kind of technology uh, that is used against us. But in some other contexts, AI is is seen as a as a much more potentially positive force. Um, so that's um, particularly some East Asian responses to AI as something that is um, potentially welcome, something that could help us, um, that could uh, support society um, in ways that humans aren't able to, or that we might not have enough human workers to do, or who don't want to do it. It's really interesting. Thank you. Um, could you speak about how you think the backgrounds and culture of researchers in AI could influence the direction in which it develops? Yes, I think the backgrounds and um, the cultures in which AI researchers um, have grown up, uh, the cultures they're familiar with, they know about, strongly shape the kinds of technology people produce. Uh, people put their personal identities and experiences into um, these technologies. Um, and particularly when there is a large group of people that share the same culture, the same values, that gets reflected into the technologies, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. And that is where biases in the technology come from. And there have been so many examples of technologies that simply don't work for large groups of people because those groups of people weren't part of the context in which the developers of the technologies thought that the kinds of people who they thought might benefit from or be affected by the technology. And so that's how you get facial recognition technologies that um, work uh, much better on some people than on others, um, which of course has huge disadvantages, but also potential advantages for the kinds of people on whom that technology doesn't work. Um, but also um, things like uh, voice assistants that don't recognize certain kinds of accents and vernaculars because um, they aren't considered a premium enough market. And as, as it 
has literally been said, um, in order to uh, develop the technology or to train the de technology in such a way that it is able to um, understand um, and respond to those kinds of voices. And um, the more different kinds of, of backgrounds and, and, and cultures are involved in AI research, the more those kinds of uh, blind spots would be ironed out if those people's um, views are actually listened to in that development. Thank you. And I was wondering if you could explain digital neocolonialism and why it is important to be aware of. So digital neocolonialism is a name given to the process taking place in um, formerly colonized countries uh, where um, these countries uh, are still or again in a subservient position to the countries that once colonized them or that once dominated them um, because of the ways in which um, their lands and their workforces are being exploited in order to produce digital technologies. And so this can range from anything from um, mining uh, rare earth metals such as lithium and cobalt to physically make the um, devices on which these technologies run uh, to extremely underpaid staff involved in training AI models, data sets, um, content moderation, things that some people still think is done by AI but is actually done by humans. And also then uh, creating new forms of dependency on technologies because um, all of this resource has been extracted and uh, taken to technology companies outside of these countries. There is just simply not enough leftover afterwards for a country to develop its own AI infrastructure, again, with those kinds of values and priorities um, that these people of different backgrounds and cultures might want. Great, thank you. And um, what do you think about the mainstream Western narratives of AI? Could the impact of these be holding us back scientifically? I think in the past, it's definitely happened that um, a lack of attention to different cultural contexts, um, to different um, histories um, has held science back particularly in medicine, in earth sciences, where a lot of developments um, were actually um, things that, for example, indigenous populations already knew for thousands of years. Now with AI, I think um, the impact of having a very small set of narratives that shape where the technology is going, I think mostly uh, could be holding us back societally because of technologies being created that only serve the needs and the wants of a minority group. And so um, what I'm afraid of is that, uh, for example, uh, because mainstream Western AI narratives tend to emphasize things like um, AI as a potential existential risk that could kill us all, um, that there is too much attention to these kind of distant future and uh, small likelihood potential developments. 
Uh, and so there is a lot of uh, attention and funding going into researching how to prevent that kind of apocalypse scenario, while at the same time, um, that serves as a distraction from uh, contemporary problems with AI, but also um, near future as well as long-term impact of the kind of AI technology that might be developed today that um, only serves the uh, interests of a minority group and that could therefore do serious damage to uh, large groups of people around the world, ranging uh, from anywhere from um, the kind of environmental impacts of exploitation to uh, the societal disruption um, that uh, has been caused by the spread of uh, misinformation um, to maintaining these huge inequalities by um, hoarding uh, the wealth um, gained out of profits from tech companies in one country while underpaying workers in another. Okay, thank you for your answer. And um, the user-friendly AI chatbot, ChatGPT, has taken 2023 by storm. What are your thoughts about it? And what do you think about AI like this being freely accessible? So the impact of ChatGPT has been really interesting because um, uh, before ChatGPT, there were um, earlier iterations of um, this system that, uh, well, were nowhere near as sophisticated, but that you could really see developing, making huge leaps um, uh, uh, over just a few years. And in rolling out ChatGPT, I could see that they clearly learned a lot from previous GPTs and their biases. So with each of these previous iterations, people who got access to the system tried to break it, uh, tried to provoke it into saying, um, you know, racist or sexist things, um, trying to tease out the consequences of the fact that um, essentially this program was trained on the contents of the internet. And the contents of the internet contain a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and um, you could see that with each iteration of GPT that the safeguards put in place were uh, stricter, were better thought through, uh, were more developed. Now, of course, with ChatGPT, even you can still see that uh, people manage to um, break it or provoke it in many, many different ways. But um, I am impressed by the ways in which they have been taking into account what went wrong in the previous instances before releasing such a system out into the wide world. But still, I think OpenAI and uh, many on the receiving end of ChatGPT were perhaps unprepared for the social consequences of the creation of such a program. And um, I, I wonder if in some ways they have weighed up things like, uh, on the one hand, this will make it so much easier for people to create spam and scams. But on the other hand, it will make um, uh, people's lives easier in so many ways. And the weight that is given to these considerations I think shows what uh, the priorities and the values are of the people behind the system. The idea, for example, that um, opening this out to the whole world 
is important to them regardless of um, the uh, potential negative social consequences because the potential positive consequences could be so huge. Now, um, a new system, GPT-4, has come out very recently, which again is an improvement on ChatGPT, and that one is suddenly not publicly accessible. So it shows, in my view, that um, there must have been a realization that perhaps the world wasn't ready, or perhaps the system wasn't ready, or perhaps both. Finally, where do you envisage AI going in the next 10 years? What are your hopes or fears for the future? I find the next 10 years question a really interesting one because um, with AI, it seems to be hard enough to predict the next 10 months these days. I mean, um, within 10 months, for example, uh, we've had these two iterations of GPT and we've had um, similarly in image generation as well as text generation, these massive improvements and suddenly everybody gets fooled by pictures of the Pope in a Balenciaga puffer jacket. Um, things that even a year ago were pretty unimaginable. So it's, it's very difficult to, to um, predict what might happen over the next 10 years, as it might be that um, there is this runaway success with improving on all these different kinds of domains and fields that AI is good in and combining them into um, something that makes uh, AI this sort of all-round intelligence that very closely would start to come to what people call artificial general intelligence. Or it could be that from now on, things start to plateau because we are getting very close to reaching a peak in what um, this technology can do. Um, that at some point, the improvements between GPT-5, 6 and 7 are only such small increments that it really doesn't make much of a difference anymore, which is a bit similar to, um, for example, how uh, smartphones had these massive improvements from model to model, um, from year to year, until at some point they just kind of ran out of technologies to improve on. And so you had smartphones with two, three, and four cameras in the back just to have something to improve on. Now, there are people who are very big proponents of that first option of artificial general intelligence, um, which I think is unlikely given what AI is. It simply regurgitates what has been fed into it with a very clever mathematical model that just um, lets it produce the text that is most likely to come after a given word and then does that millions of times so that you get a sentence that looks really natural. There already are lots of people who um, have been claiming that chat GPT and things like it might be sentient or might soon be sentient. Um, but I think that's that's very unlikely. Now, what I would be very interested in is seeing these massive leaps in AI combined with leaps in robotics to get these machines interacting in the real world to an extent that we don't have today. I mean, I recently moved house and um, I discovered that you can get 
basically any imaginable appliance now um, that you can hook up to the internet and that is claimed to have AI in it, you know, dishwashers, washing machines, hoovers. But they don't actually have any kind of um, intelligence system in it. And I wonder what is going to happen over the next few years as these truly big advances in AI technology uh, will start to um, enter the everyday world outside of our computers. Again, I hope that in that case, the devices that come out of that are the ones that um, are genuinely useful and genuinely beneficial for a lot of people, rather than just the ability to have an app to control your laundry. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. We want to thank our guests, Kerry McInerney, Eleanor Drage, and Kanta Dihau for discussing AI of us on today's episode. Please check out our show notes on the OUP blog for a recommended reading list exploring just a few of the ideas discussed today. New episodes of the Oxford Common will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow Oxford Academic on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube to stay up to date with upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to the Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 82 was produced by Stephen Filippi, Himali Rupasinghe, and me, Hope Jennings Grounds. Thank you for listening. <laughs>